All right, we're about to go live. Okay. The link is live. I'm about to uh, share with the Twitter now. What's up, people? Hotep Jesus, we are back for another big brain talk. Today we're talking with Jason Stapleton about money and power. But before we get to that, before we get to that, if you don't already know, Hotep Khan, a couple of months away, May 1st to the 2nd, Washington, D.C. We have about six VIP tickets left, I believe. Those are going fast, and then general admission will start after VIP is sold out. Hotepnation.com slash Hotepcon. Let me go ahead and pop that in the box here for my chatters. Appreciate you people in the chat. As always, if you want to ask a question, make a comment, hit us up with a super chat. I'll be able to accommodate you. Uh, this this podcast is actually sponsored by Wazo. You know, one of my my new acquisitions, new tech company I'm involved in. Uh, we, we do artificial intelligence surveillance, facial recognition, weapon detection, fall detection. Um, we got a meeting next week set up to do some smart building work. So um, we're measuring things like uh, dwell time, people counts, where people are standing, heat maps, et cetera, et cetera. So really, really interesting things. This is sort of new for me. Um, but um, getting into AI and tech and the needs of these people in their smart buildings is is, is very, very interesting um, and fun too. I got a great team with uh, Riley and Danny. Riley's our tech guy, CTO and uh, CEO, uh, does a fabulous job um, on the tech side of things. And then we should have the home version available this summer, hopefully. We'll have the home device available. We, we, we kind of pivoted into... Uh, into commercial buildings, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, uh, and also because, you know, a lot of people reached out to us um, when we were at CES. CES was a big success for us. And, um, you know, it's the, the bigger jobs obviously pay bigger. So we kind of got to look at those immediately, especially if they're they're in a funnel and just waiting to be sold. Um, so that's wazosecurity.com. If you guys want to keep up with that company, go ahead, go to wazosecurity.com. And the link in, in, um, in, the, in the box below, you can sign up and subscribe to the email list and it will update you on all those things happening there. Um, for everybody that's familiar with my Joe Rogan uh, interview, um, before I went on Joe Rogan, I was invited out by uh, Jason Stapleton and his team uh, for an interview. And we had, a, I would say, probably you know, a top 10 interview of mine. Um, definitely uh, well done, well put together. Um, I think Jason did a great job interviewing me. And um, today, um, we're happy to have him all here on my channel to kind of dive into, you know, what it is he does. 
um, what he's done, so on and so forth. So without further ado, my man, Jason. Jason, what's up, man? How you feeling, bro? Thanks, man. Thanks. Thank you so much. I'm always interested in all the stuff you got going on. You got your fingers in a lot of different things. Artificial intelligence, heat mapping, all that stuff. I'm yeah. like, man, you got, you got. <laughs> it's always interesting to me, but it's great to be talking with you again, man. It's been a long time. Yeah, you know, the thing is, the liberals control tech. So, you know, they need guys like us that's in tech, too. So um, I agree. You and, you know, know it's, it's funny because the, the libertarian, uh, a lot of libertarians look at this as like a, as something that a freedom destroyer. Oh, we're going to be able to tell where people are all the time. And, you know, there's not going to be any privacy anymore. Matt said something interesting on, on my show the other day. He just, Matt's my co-host. And he said, uh, uh, he said, you know what, I think it's going to be liberating. I think, you know, the fact that there is no place to hide anymore means that you can't hide anything anymore. And mm -hmm. it's a really interesting uh, perspective on it. And, and I think in, in terms of, I think you can't hold back that progress anyway. I think artificial intelligence, facial recognition, heat mapping, all that stuff is, it's here already and it's only going to get bigger. And uh, so the fact that you found a way to capitalize on that and, and be on the kind of bleeding edge is, is impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. Um, AI is an inevitable technology is inevitable. It's coming. You either adapt or get adopted. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So when, when we first met, uh, you know, you had a really interesting story. You started out trading um, currencies or you had a, a platform for trading currencies. You're teaching people. Uh, about, yeah, I, I, I think it's Forex, right? Yeah, it's, it's called for, Foreign Exchange Currencies or Forex. And, uh, and I started trading currencies when I was overseas in, in uh, first in Iraq and then in Afghanistan. And I worked for a contracting company there called Blackwater. And we, uh, we did security work for people with the State Department, diplomats and stuff. And I had a lot of time on my hands and a lot of money. And so I, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do because I knew I didn't want to do that work forever. And wait, what did you do for them? Uh, I did security, high threat security. What, what do you mean? You some total 007 type agent guy? Yep, exactly. So if you if you went to Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, basically, if you were any diplomat from Barack Obama to, uh, you know, to um, who's it, uh, um, Laura Bush, uh, if you flew into Afghanistan anytime in like a three year window, I was there. I did the security for you. Um, I did the I, I ran the counter assault team for the U.S. ambassadors detail in Afghanistan for a long time. Uh, so what does that what does that basically entail? You say you know what pieces need to be where the route that these people are taking and yeah, everything from it. So in that case, let's say I'll, I'll give you a, a big uh, a big scale one. If if Obama comes to town and he wants to go and see what's going on and he wants to talk to Barzani or one of these other like not Barzani but one of these other big leaders, Barzani's in northern Iraq. Um, but uh, then his Secret Service detail will fly in, and he has a special Secret Service team that does all of his away missions, anything any outside the country stuff. But the problem is those guys are not very well uh, equipped to handle high-threat security uh, in, a, in a third world country. Uh, and so what we do is, is we link up with them. We say, here are the routes that we suggest. Here's, here's uh, order of movement. Here's the sort of, we got army that's coming alongside to act with air support, and we coordinate all of that for them. And then, uh, and then at boots on the ground, guys like me, other guys, other guys on the team provide uh, direct security for the, whoever the diplomat or, or political figure is. 
Mm, mm. Yeah, you got that Tom Cruise Mission Impossible look to you. Man. <laughs> well, I don't know about I don't know about any of that, but uh, yeah, a lot of most of the guys for a long time, most of the guys in there were all former special operations guys. They were all SEALs, former um, Marine Force Recon, and and uh, and and Green Berets. And then as the contracts expanded and they got bigger, you got more and more guys involved. But for a long time, it was just you went there and it's just a bunch of special ops guys who are out there doing, you know, really high speed, low drag stuff. So you were spec ops or what were you? SEAL? I was in a Marine Force, I was in a Marine Force reconnaissance unit and a sniper team. And uh, I did mainly counterterrorism and uh, counterinsurgency and hostage rescue. That was, that was what I was trained to do. And I was also trained as an explosive breacher. So um, used to uh, learn to use explosives. So um, basically I was a, I was a person of consequence in the in the right situation. <laughs> those 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 skills didn't serve me very well when I got out of the service, but while I was in, it was it was pretty handy. So on the sniper team, were you the guy pulling the trigger or were you the scouter? Um, I was well. There's there's two different t- types of guys in a sniper team. Um, there are snipers, and then there are uh, there there are hogs, and there are, uh, there are um, pogs. So I'm sorry, uh, not pogs. Um, I'm going to screw this up now. It's been so long. It's been like 20 years, uh, but there's a hog, uh, it, which is a, a sniper, a guy who's been to sniper school. And then there are the, uh, the other guys on the team that haven't been to sniper school. And uh, somebody, some of the snipers out there screaming his head off. I was in a sniper team for about a year and uh, they didn't have any sniper school quotas. And I wasn't, that wasn't looking at being able to go before reenlistment. And so I ended up moving over into a reconnaissance team. So I, I tr- like to clarify because being a sniper in the Marine Corps is a really difficult job. It's very hard to get uh, to earn that title. And so while I was trained and I operated uh, with the sniper team for about a year, I did never go to school. Um, oh, okay. And so, but I did find myself at times uh, uh, basically laying next to a sniper and, and, uh, and, and basically calling wind and stuff like that for him because I, I didn't know how to do it. Right. So being part of the sniper team is basically an assistant to the sniper. Yeah. Well, basically your job until you go to sniper school is to just get the shit kicked out of you. I mean, they just, they just abuse you all day because you're like the lowest pond scum imaginable. Uh, and so that was really your job is abuse to go there you, and abuse you how? Uh, physically, mentally, I mean, emotionally, what, a, any way possible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This was, and this was after you did your few years in the service. Well, that was, no, I, that was w- when I was in the service. I did that. Oh, okay. and, then when I, and then when I got out of the service, I realized, Hey, I'm qualified to do nothing. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had the wars in uh, the war in Iraq kicked off. And I decided to, I got a call from a friend of mine who said, Hey, do you want to make a bunch of money over here doing what we used to do in the service? And I said, yeah. So that's, that's how that worked. Okay. Tell me about this call. How, about what? what did he say? Was it, you know, what was the weather like? Was it, were you in Afghanistan when you got this call? No, no, I was, I was back in, I was back, I was back in the world. I was back in, here in, here in the United States. I was working as a sheriff's deputy, uh, just hating life, hating life, working the night shift. And I ended up linking back up with him and chatting with him. And he's like, uh, what do you, what, I'm like, what are you doing now? He's like, yeah, I'm in Afghanistan. I'm playing video games. And I said, what are you, are you playing video? He's in Northern Iraq. I'm in Northern Iraq playing video games. I'm like, you're in Northern, you're in Iraq playing video games. He said, yeah, man. He said, I'm working for a contracting company. We're doing security. And I started asking him questions about it. And finally he was like, dude, you want a job? Like they're hiring. They need people all the time. He's like, I'll give you the guy to send your resume to, and I'll call him ahead of time. And you're basically guaranteed a shot to come try out. 
And I said, yeah, this, this beats working the night shift for 60 grand a year, working 70 hours a week for 60 grand a year. So, uh, so I left, I went on it. Yeah. And, uh, and there's a big, there's a big vetting process that you have to go through. And then, uh, I, I went into country and I was supposed to go up to Northern Iraq and Mosul and, and work with him. And about a week before I was scheduled to fly over, he sent me a note and he's like, man, we're completely filled up, filled up here. You're going to have to go to Baghdad and, uh, sorry, man, but hopefully we can get you up here when some guys rotate out. And so I was a little disappointed about that, but I said, all right, whatever. So we, you fly from the States to Jordan. And then you're typically at that time, you were in a holding pattern in Jordan for sometimes a week or two until they could get a plane to fly you into country. And so we're, I'm sitting there in Jordan and I'm checking my email every day. And all of a sudden I get an email from him like the day before I'm supposed to come over. And he said, dude, where are you at right now? Um, and I said, uh, I am in Jordan. And he said, I said, what's up? And I didn't hear anything back. Mm. And then I get into country and I show up at the, you know, at the headquarters office and they're like, Hey, you're going up North. And I said, uh, I said, what happened? I thought they were full up. He goes, well, four guys got killed yesterday. Uh, vehicle, I vehicle IED hit the, hit the rear vehicle in a motorcade and killed all four of the guys. So you're one of the replacements. Mm. And I actually flew up there with a couple of state department guys that were there to kind of smooth the waters over after four of these guys got killed. And uh, that's, that, that's an interesting position to be in, to be the replacement for four guys, four dead friends uh, who just lost their lives like 24 hours ago. Mm. But to, I mean, to their credit, all those guys were incredible. They really accepted me uh, and, and just brought me into the fold and said, hey, you're, you're part of the team. It's not your fault that you know, our friends are dead. And, and what, uh, what was that? That was uh, a military operation? No, that was as a contractor, as a military contractor working as a for military Blackwater. contractor. Yeah. Hired by who? Uh, Blackwater. Oh, that was Blackwater. Yeah. Isn't Blackwater the, uh, I believe Grand Theft Auto spoofs Blackwater in their game. Yes, they do. Yeah. Yep. That's They're the same the, company, right? Yep. Paramilitary organization that, you know, run by the Dark Prince himself, uh, Eric Prince uh, of the era of the prince tire fortune yeah he's uh it's it's very much it's got a it's not even called blackwater anymore it's called some like random weird name like it, alumni or something but it's it's still around just not no, the contracting world is not the same as it was back then okay. back then it was really the wild west i mean it was just it was crazy there were 22 ieds going off in the city every day like you were just you were you're just trying to stay alive and mm. you know you you just you just hope that everybody came back alive. And, and as times, as time went by, you know, more and more paperwork, more and more like, like junk. And, and now it's a lot like, probably a lot like being a cop. It's called Merryweather on Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. 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 yeah there you go. Merryweather. I love, it's so funny. It's so funny that you say that, that you make a Grand Theft Auto reference because when I moved out to LA, I had spent a little bit of time here, but I hadn't spent a lot of time and I would drive through LA and I'd be like, Oh, I know that place from grand theft auto. Oh, I, I know that. I know that, that hotel. There's a, there's a parking garage right around there where I can go and hide in a firefight and, and evade the cops. Like I, it was, it's so stupid. Oh, People so you, laugh at me all the time. You can map it out, right? Yeah. I can map out the, the city. You're like, I know exactly where that is, man. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, Stupid. Yeah, that's Merriweather from Grand Theft Photo. So, so let everybody know we got the dude from Merriweather on the channel right now. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, that was a, that was another life, man. That was another life. Damn. So you was basically um 007. And then after that, you was like, fuck it, we about to get this money. Like, how do you how do you make that transition from from guns? Well, they, to if they butter? if they need people, you you got a job. You know, I was just I was a hired gun. That's what I was. I people paid me to provide them protection. Yeah. And um over the course of, I, I worked mainly for the U S government, but I also worked for private companies and stuff. I did some low pro, uh, low, pro, low profile missions where we would drive around. We'd look like local nationals. We put on the, you know, the head wraps and, you know, grow beards and, and all that stuff to kind of blend in. And we would move people who needed, needed, they didn't need a big signature. They needed people to not know they were on the street. So we did some of that type of stuff too. Uh, but basically it's just, you know, you make between 500 and $1,500 a day, every day you're in country and, uh, it depending on the contract you're on. And so a guy can go and work for six months out of the year and make a hundred grand or 200 grand and then, then go home. Mm. Interesting. And then chill out in Acapulco and yeah. Recovery. A lot of guys do that. A lot of guys who aren't married, they, they, if you stay out of country 333 days, you don't have to pay taxes on that money. So a lot of these guys, they were American citizens, but they would fly from Afghanistan or Iraq to Chile or to, uh, you know, to, uh, like you said, Acapulco or some other, you know, someplace where they could just chill for a couple of weeks and take a break and then go back into country. Damn, that's crazy. So, um, damn, private military contracts. Is that legal? Uh, as long as the government's doing it. So, Yeah. <laughs> Technically, it just depends on where you're at. I, I got recruited. I got hired to go on a pirate hunting um, contract at one point. So they they hired. It was remember when all those ships were getting hijacked in the yep. in the Gulf of uh, you know the Gulf Mediterranean of Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, the yeah up there around uh, Yemen and all that right yeah. in there. Well, that was uh, they hired a group of us to because one of the things I did in the in the military is called VBSS. It's visit board search and seizure. So I learned how to take down ships. And they were looking to sell my services to people. We were going to put a boat out on the water and we were going to guard these ships that had to traverse through this area. And for a multitude of reasons, the contract never went off, but they have all kinds of stuff like that comes up. I, I know guys who I have a friend right now who has a very successful uh, security consulting company in Nigeria and uh, has just been doing really good, really great stuff out there with the oil companies. And so there's there's lots of opportunities for somebody, even if you don't want to be a trigger puller, if you want to like legitimately run a security company, there's lots of opportunities. Are you uh, are you single right now? Yeah, yeah, I am. I think I think I know why. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, that's that's probably not the only reason, but uh, you know, I have a girlfriend. You know, if anybody anybody cares, uh, but yeah I, think, uh, yeah, I think I think you might still be undercover, man. Oh no, my <laughs> life is normal now, man. I I sit here and talk to you about uh, you know life and politics and and culture and all that stuff. I, I um, a lot. Uh, it's a lot safer business. You you still got killer written on your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's still in there. I could see it. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, I, I haven't had to take it out for a while. So it's just been, it's laying dormant. What's the, what's the wildest mission you ever been on? Hmm. Let me think of one I can tell you about. But well, most memorable. Yeah. Most. Um, well, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one crazy thing that happened. It's kind of a funny story. 
So we were, we had to go to one of the regular missions that we ran when I was in Northern Iraq in Mosul was we would run to parliament. The, the, most of the guys I was working, I was protecting at that time were part of the provincial reconstruction team. And so they built roads and bridges and stuff. They basically gave money to the Iraqis to do this stuff. And they would always meet at parliament to talk to whoever they needed to talk to there. So we do a run down to parliament one day, drive our guy down there and we're all sitting around. And one of the things I would do a lot of times is go to the roof with the snipers and I would watch and just, you know, provide overwatch. And like I said, at that time, there were about 20, between 20, around 20 IEDs a day that would go off. Like there's just explosions would happen all over the city. And so you could sit in, in, on, on top of this roof and look over the city and just watch stuff blow up all over town. Mm. And we're sitting there one day and I watch something blow up. And then I hear the report come over the, the military's radio because they're relaying back where it came from. And that explosion was on our return route home. It was where we were planning on the, the route we were taking back. Mm. And so we very quickly decided that we would, we would have to adjust our route home. And we decided to take a route that took us all the way out on the outside, the outskirts of the city. And it wasn't a normal route that we would take. We thought, ah, you know, screw these guys. They'll never think we're going to go this way because we never go this way. And so we load everybody up and we head home. And there's a big traffic jam and we made a left-hand turn. I remember we made a left and we hit just like a, just a bunch of people. And on the right side, keep in mind, everything there has just been bombed to hell. And so to our right side is like a, I can't remember whether it was just like concrete rock that had been destroyed or it was an old building there or something, but something was laying there. And I was driving the follow vehicle. So you have a lead vehicle and then you have the principal's vehicle, the guy you're protecting in the middle. And then behind that, you have a follow vehicle. And it was so dangerous up there that our lead vehicle and our follow vehicle were Humvees with turret gunners. And I normally was the lead turret gunner. That was, that was the normal place that I was at. So my job was to protect the front of the motorcade and, uh, and, and basically just lay hate on anybody who got too close to us. And back then we had a really simple rule. You stay back 500 meters and if you break 500 meters, you die. So we would just shoot anybody who came within 500 meters of the motorcade. And so we're kind of stopped and you never want to be stopped. And so we're all kind of sitting there going, and we must've been stopped for just a couple of seconds. And all of a sudden that concrete embankment just to the, to the right of the lead vehicle exploded, just boom, huge explosion. And immediately it turned a lot of that concrete just into dust. And so not only a huge explosion, but now a wall of dust just encompasses everything and you can't see anything. Now, in the way our SOP work, our standard operating procedures would work, if there was an explosion and we needed to know what to do, the lead vehicle would decide that. You would hear over the radio, either push through or back out. Push through means you go straight, back out, right? Self-explanatory. Well, I don't know if the lead vehicle is even there or not anymore. So all I know is that I'm, I'm supposed to wait for him to give me a call. And so I shifted my vehicle into neutral. Because I figured, well, I can either go forward or go backwards and neutral's halfway there. And I waited what felt like forever. Um, it was probably three seconds. And all of a sudden I hear uh, push through, push through. And so I drop it into drive and I just slam on the gas and I can't see anything. So I don't know if I'm going to smash into the back of the, uh, of the principal's vehicle or what. I just slam on the gas and we blow through and all of a sudden everything opens up. And I can see the lead, I can see the principal's vehicle and it just takes off. It just, just, it's gone, uh, which is what it should do. It did, that's the right thing. 
and the the lead vehicle i'm looking at the lead vehicle and i could tell it's 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 hurting a little bit and there's no gunner in the top gunner position Ooh. and i go that was my buddy hollywood and everybody goes by call signs there his sign was a call sign was hollywood and so hollywood wasn't there anymore and so as i'm driving i'm like oh can i swear on this podcast yeah how you oh, okay all right so i'm like ah oh, fuck man fuck man what's going on with hollywood and I'm talking to the, my, my A driver. I mean, he's like, I don't know, man. I don't know what's going on. He's like, just drive, just fucking drive. And, uh, and all of a sudden I see our interpreter pop up out, our local national interpreter pop up into the up gunner position and take, take over the gun. Oh, wow. Now that should never happen. That, uh -huh. there's, that dude should not be behind a weapon. Right. But there, now there he is behind a, a you know, a, 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 a machine gun as we're rolling down the road and all I hear is my buddy Sonic just says, uh, hey, we're going straight to the to the hospital. We're going straight to the and so I'm really worried again, man, that, that my buddy's like really messed up. So finally we get back to the uh, forward operating base, uh, Camp Courage, I believe is what it FOB Courage, and drove right to the medical facility. And I see um I see Hollywood get out of the back and he's got like a bunch of gauze and shit on his face. And I'm like, dude, he's I, I don't know. I hope he's okay. But he was walking, so we're like, I hope he's okay. And so here's the story. Let me back you up now to in the car, in, in the vehicle that just got hit with an IED and Hollywood's reaction. So they get hit and my buddy Sonic, who was in the lead vehicle says it rocked me for a minute, but then I realized that we were okay. And I was just like, okay, let's just drive. And so we hit the gas and we punched through and Hollywood is in the turret and he's looking down and all of a sudden he looks down and there's just blood all over his shirt, all over his shirt. And he's like, he starts sleeping out. He starts freaking out. He's like, what the fuck? What the fuck? He's down in, he's down in the, uh, he's down, down in the turret. So now he's like getting down in there. And he's like, he's like, look at this, Sam, look at this. He's talking to the interpreter, Sam, look at this. Did they get me in the jugular? Did they get me in the jugular? Right? So he's like, am I bleeding out? And I don't even know it because that'll happen. And, uh, and he's just freaking out about, you know, getting hit with the shrapnel from this IED. Well, Dude. it turns out a piece of shrapnel or something came right across the top of his nose. And a couple did come across his neck, but it was the, his nose that it took a huge gash out of it. And he was just raining blood out of his nose all over his, uh, his, his vest, his bulletproof Damn. vest. And he was sure, just sure that he'd been hit. And so we make, we made fun of him for so long after that. Like every time, every, every beer around the fire after that was like, did they get me in the jugular? <laughs> like you dumb fuck. You were fine. You, you, had, you had a scratch. You were scratched. Complaining about you jugular. Like just absolutely, absolutely no care or concern once we knew he was okay. Oh, shit. It was all right. We're like, okay, now we're going to make fun of you forever. Yeah. But that was, that, that was one that, uh, that happened. Uh, that I love those. Interesting. Yeah, my dad, my dad was um with special forces, so I love to hear all the old army stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I bet he's got some good ones, man. Oh man, every time I get around, he he got another story to tell. <laughs> just, we just came back from Jamaica, so you know his army bases all around Kingston. So he's showing me the different army bases and whatnot, and and where he went to training in London and yeah. all this. This was back in the sixties. Yeah, you know but um, yeah, man, I just love hearing those type stories. We got super chats. Shout out to the homie Will, nine ninety nine super chat. Appreciate you, homie. We got to link up soon in Burma. Put one in the air, homie. Hit me up. Uh, Matthew Erickson, 
Appreciate you, homie. Dollar 99. He said, ask Jason about the winner's win story. Oh, the winner's win winner's story. win story. Okay. Um, so I'm sitting in, this was uh, a few years later. So I had gone, I was in Northern Iraq and then I went to Afghanistan for, uh, for about a year. And then I came back to Northern Iraq in a place called Erbil. Now, Erbil is a little further north of Mosul. Mosul is very dangerous. Erbil is in a part of, of Iraq called Kurdistan, and it's a relatively safe place. And my job at that time was, was working with uh, some folks who were handling voting. So they were doing regular voting, and, and they were setting up polling stations. And these folks were training the, the Kurds on how to set up polling stations and how to run a, a, a voting operation. And so I was basically taking them around. It was a cush gig. It really was nice compared to where I had been. It was like easy money. Yeah. And uh, we lived in houses actually on the street in, uh, in Erbil. And so they were blocked off by, by T walls and stuff, but we actually, we lived in a house and my house, we lived in kind of a cul-de-sac and my house was a house that also had the kitchen in it. And on the main floor of that house, you could go down and there was a local there, a local Kurd who would show up and every morning he would make you whatever you wanted. You want to make some eggs, you want some, you know, you want some sausage or whatever. He just had some stuff there and he'd make you an omelet or whatever. And I didn't, so a lot of people would come over to our house in the morning and sit in like this long dining room table. And at the end of the table, there was a TV with, uh, you know, with news typically playing on it. And I'm not big on breakfast, but the guy, one of the guys on the other team had a press, a coffee press and I love coffee. So we would go down in the morning about the same time and, uh, and he'd share his coffee with me and we were talking and chatting and up on, I can't remember what was up on the TV, but it was Fox news. And they were, I mean, it was, it was the end of something because Obama had done something and now your freedoms and Liberty were going to be gone forever. Or, or it was some such, whatever it's what Fox news talks about all the time. Right. So I'm talking with this guy across from me and we're discussing the merits of this conversation. At that time, I was a pretty staunch neoconservative, um, not, not at all anymore, but at the time I was. And uh, there was another guy who was sitting at the table. His name was Josh. And I didn't know Josh very well, but um, because Josh was on another team, but I, I'd seen him around. We've been cordial. And so he's just shoveling cereal into his mouth just as fast as he can get it in, just like I Fruit Loops or something. And I go, hey, Josh, what do you uh, like? What do you think about all this, whatever they're talking about? And he said, what, this? He's like, oh, I don't care. And I was like, I was like, dude, how can you not care? Like we're over here and we're doing this thing and we're, you know, we're, 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 we're putting our lives on the line for this paycheck. And uh and you don't even care about what your government's doing. And I'm, I was actually a little offended. Uh, and so I was kind of pressing him on it. Like, I can't believe that you don't care more about what's going on in our country. And he looked at me. i never forget this. Not as long as I live. He's shoveling cereal in just as fast as he can. All of a sudden, he just stops. Like, cereal still in the spoon. And he drops the spoon out of his hand into the, into the milk, into the bowl of milk. Milk splashes out onto the table. And he looks at me dead in the eye and he goes, do you want to know? Do you really want to know? And having, if you've never worked with guys like this, this is a delicate situation, okay? Because you have to both not be a bitch and at the same time, not get into a fight that's going to get you kicked off contract, okay? So, because you can't fight with each other, but a lot of these guys are, they're not always wired right, 
And so, as you can imagine, <laughs> and so fights tend to break out from time to time when, when people get hot, uh, normally when they don't have anything to do or a way to get their energy and aggression out. So uh, he goes, do you really want to know? And so me not wanting to be the bitch, I'm like, yeah, I really want to know. And he looked at me and he goes, I don't care what these guys do because I'm a winner. He said, you know what winners do, man? I go, no, what do they do? What do they do, Josh? He goes, they win. He said, it doesn't matter what they do. I'm going to find a way to win. There's nothing that they can't put in my way that I can't get around, that I can't figure out because I'm a winner and that's what winners do. And he picked his spoon back up and he just continued shoveling cereal back into his mouth. It changed, I, there, it changed my entire life, man. I'm not even kidding you. It is a life-changing moment. That 15 seconds of conversation with him it changed my whole worldview. All of a sudden, it wasn't about what was happening on TV. It wasn't about what somebody else did or didn't do for me or to me. It was all about me. Hmm. Now, the funny thing is, I found, I found out a, a little bit about Josh later on that I didn't know at the time. And it was uh, the main thing was that he was in Iraq because he liked the work, not because he needed the money. He owned an auto shop um, and, uh, and, a, and a fabrication shop in, I think it was in California, and also had a very lucrative, uh, a lucrative grass business growing out of the back before that was legal. And he was heavily invested in the stock market and, and just, he was really was a very successful guy. And it's something that I've carried with me and I've shared the story many times with people because I think it is, I think the biggest problem, we are our biggest, uh, we are our biggest hurdles to success. Most of the time we look at other people and we say, well, I don't have what I want because, well, that guy's keeping me back or that my boss is holding me down or, or nobody's going to let me do that because of X, Y, and Z. And the truth is, is that you can have anything you want in this world as long as you're willing to fight for it. And as long as you're willing not to accept uh, defeat or somebody else putting a roadblock in your way as, as an impediment to your success. And so it, 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 had, it, it carried with me. And I, I preach that message to as many people as I can because it is powerful. Mm, mm, that resonates over here. Um, you know, that's the vibration I operate on, have been operating on, I want to say nearly my whole life. I think maybe around my 20s. I think early 20s, I think I had two slumps in my life where I got off that mind track. But when you're on that mind track, the universe opens up all the doors to you, man. All the doors. And a lot of people really just don't understand like just that mentality, what it does um, as far as opening up possibilities in your mind. Because if your mind says, I can't, then your mind's not going to start working on possibilities and solutions. But if your mind is, I can, then the mind has to start working on possibilities and solutions. You know, and if, and if we point to somebody else, I think this is it, uh, to that point. Um, I think when we choose to say, well, oh, that I, I, I can't, my, my boss is never going to give me a raise or I'm never going to get that promotion. We use that as an excuse not to do the work. Oh, see, now we don't, now we, we don't have to accept it as failure on our part. It's somebody else's fault, right? Uh, it's not us, it's them. And that's, that to me is the biggest problem and mental break that I see. Uh, red, yellow, black, white, rich, poor, it doesn't really matter where you come from or where you start. The people who end up being successful are people who don't allow that mentality to invade their mind for very long. And like you said, we all have points in, in our lives when, when we say, oh, man, I just, you're not living that value, right? It's, it, you, 
world's got you down, you know, life's kicking the shit out of you. But at some point, you've got to stand up and, and say, no, 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 I'm, I'm not going to let this defeat me. Um, I'm in charge of my destiny. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. I, I get to decide where I go and what I become. And nobody can stand in my way. Nobody can hold me down. You can only make it more difficult. You can't prevent me from getting where I want to go. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. Um, we got some super chats here from this guy, Logan Boxing. He's funny. He says, Jason, can you donate money to a man with a spinal injury? He also said, facts, winners win. That's why the white man is God. <laughs> <laughs> he said, he said this caveman is long-winded. <laughs> is he, oh man, is, is he joking or is he for real? He trolling. All right. Well, no, and here's the thing. Well, if he's trolling, then this is this is what I would say to you, you fucking troll, is that, you know, that's why you're broke and poor. And that's why you can't go anywhere is because you got a mindset that says, oh, somebody, it's somebody else's fault. You know, yeah. it's, it's like it's somebody else's responsibility to give me money because I, I had an injury. Oh, right. Yeah. You Whatever, be, man. You I, I sit at a desk all day. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't have, I have no tolerance for that at all. Yeah. Give me money. What? So you can get, here's the thing. If I gave you all my money, you'd give it back to me because I attract money and you, and you just, you repel it. You, yeah. You know, you repel it like a good woman, like a, a healthy meal. You just throw that shit back. Um, it's, <laughs> It's like, that's, I, I, that's why I, that's I, all this wealth redistribution stuff. I just laugh. I'm like, <laughs> if you took the, the richest 1% of America and you just redistributed all their wealth to the poorest people within three years, it all be back in their hands again, <laughs> because they understand how to make money. They know how well, how winning is done, how wealth gets created mm. and how value turns into wealth. And you can't hold on to a dollar past day, payday. It's, it's probably already spent before the money even comes in. You know, that's not an issue of you not making enough money. That's an issue of your mindset at the beginning. I mean, yeah. I scrubbed trailers at Trans Am for, uh, you know, for $10 an hour. Like I, I've done some of the worst jobs imaginable. So, you know, you can't talk to me like I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I was born in a double wide trailer on a, on a dirt farm in, uh, in Southwest Kansas, man. So, yeah, the, the, I, I have had no opportunity. I joined the military because I had no chance of going to college. I barely graduated and uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I thought, well, the, the military will give me a payday. It'll give me a cot to sleep in every night and it'll let me see part of the world that I probably wouldn't ever see if, uh, if I decided to go to college. So all of these things that people come up with are just excuses uh, for, for, their, for their own deficiencies, their own failures, and their, uh, their unwillingness to get out there and take some risk and some personal responsibility. Yeah, hell yeah. This, this troll is still throwing super chats. I appreciate you, Logan Boston. Yeah, let's make you some money, man. Let's make you some money. Hit me again. Tell me again how I'm, the, I'm, your, how I'm your problem, how, how I'm the reason that, that you can't get ahead, He's, right? He's, he's paying for these super chats too. Yeah, he so yeah, you see, he did, can't hold on to any money. See what I'm saying? Doesn't know how to hold on to a dollar complaining about not having anything. And he's just throwing his money at you. So let's do that. Just transfer see, that wealth, man. I see that with women too. You know, like women, when it comes to weight, they, uh, they'll say, Oh, I'm going to get an operation. I'm like, all you're going to do is be back fat in the next 10 years anyway, because you never actually built the discipline to maintain that body you have now. Yeah. If you cultivated the discipline to maintain the body you had now, you wouldn't need surgery 10 years from now or now. 
So what's no. funny is I, I was talking with somebody um, a little while ago who was uh, looking at getting a surgery to lose weight. They said, well, I just can't lose the weight. I've, I've tried everything. I've tried for years, can't lose the weight. And in order to get the surgery, uh, this person had to lose like 50 pounds. And they, she went on a diet, a special liquid diet to lose the 50 pounds. And, uh, and she lost it. And I'm like, Oh, so, so you can lose the weight if you, if you want to, your body, it really isn't any different than anybody else's. Uh, you just, you know, you've never had the commitment until you had a goal of getting the surgery. And so, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. This men and women are the same. Yeah. I'm going to get the surgery. It's like, nah, you're just going to, you're going to go right back to where you were before because internally nothing's changed. Yeah. Yeah. Real talk. Hotep. <laughs> Hotep Dutch said, keep them coming, Logan. More food at HotepCon. Yeah, I'm trying to make <laughs> what's going on with HotepCon, man. What are you guys gonna be talking about out there? I'm trying to make sure everybody eat good, drink good, have fun, and, and walk away with a better understanding of Hotep. You okay, know, cool. Um, we got we got Sonny Johnson coming through giving a lecture, Mars Toure. We got a, a PhD chemist. Um, to uh, Tanai Ricks, and we have a, a, a music artist coming through as well, uh, as well as the whole Hotep team. So um, it's going to be lit, man. It's going to be lit May 1st to the 2nd, Washington, D.C. The team is tagging the phone right now, making um, ordering uh, group packages at the hotel. It's like six VIP tickets left. Yeah, it's crazy, man. I love it. I love it. We're looking at doing our first uh, live event this year, too, if I can get around to it. It's getting a little late in the year to start planning this thing, but I wanted to do it. I just, that type of stuff scares the crap out of me, mainly because I'm so introverted that the idea of spending three or four days like with people um, that want to talk to me is like almost, almost is enough to send me into like a tailspin. Yeah. And so yeah, it's, it's nerve wracking for me. I'm the same way. So what I did was I created a private channel and invited all the homies to the private channel. So I know everybody's in a private channel bought the VIP tickets. So the only people that, that pretty much have VIP tickets are people I actually want to be around. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, nice. And I'm really going to be like, I'm not going to be giving too much attention to general admission. Um, you know, I'll give as much as I can, but um, once my social media dies, it's dead. And I don't want nobody to see me at, at, at zero because <laughs> then I turn into an asshole. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, that's, that's the other problem is I got to be on. I got to be, I smile and I got to shake hands and I got to act like I'm interested. And really, I'm not. I just want to go back to my room and be alone. Yeah, <laughs> so. <laughs> exactly. So let's let's talk about um, the transition from uh, guns to the butter, from, yeah. from, from, from the military to the chicken. How, how did that come about? How did you make that transition into Forex and all that? Well, like I said, I, while I was overseas, I had a lot of two things. I had a lot of time and a lot of money because mm -hmm. we would normally work only about two days a week uh, because that was people who are government bureaucrats don't want to go out when they could get killed. And so they go out as little as possible. And so for the rest of the time, I was just kind of sitting around and trying to make a decision about what I wanted to do with my life like long term. And I decided that if I could do anything, I kind of wanted to work in finance. And I didn't know what that meant. It was kind of a crazy goal for a guy who barely graduated high school and didn't like math uh, to say, well, I'm going to be in, in finance. <laughs> but I thought, well, maybe I could start a, maybe I could be a, a broker or, or maybe I could uh, a wealth manager, or, or maybe I could just uh, start trading and, and start a, a hedge fund or something like that. I, I don't know. But I knew the first thing I needed to learn was 
how the stock market worked, how um, central banking worked uh, and finance. So I started studying and I took the money that I was making and I invested it in training courses and I invested it in the stock market and in um, different trading strategies and learning stuff. And over the course of about five years, um, I got to be really, really pretty good at it. Good enough that I thought I could raise a little bit of money. And um, I started looking around at what it would take to start a hedge fund. And what I realized was here, there was a big problem with it. I'm not sure if it's the same way now, but back then here was the deal is that you put a track record together and you take it to one of these big funds of funds or a big fund that invests in other funds. And they got lots of money, like so much money, they don't know where to put it all. And you go to them and you show them a decent track record. And this is what they typically say to you. They say, dude, we love your track record. This is great. Um, but here's the problem. We can't give you less than $5 million and we can't be more than 20% of your total allocation. So come back to us when you've got $20 million under management, right? Or we can't be more than 10%. So come back to us when you got $20 million under management and we would love to give you another five. And so now you're in this situation where you're like, well, how do I do that? Like, how, where am I going to get $20 million, right? And then you realize that, hey, to really even make the thing profitable with all of the regulations, CFTC, uh, NFA, all, all of these different regulatory agencies, you got to really have about $10 million under management just to make it worth getting out of bed in the morning. And when I say getting out of bed, I'm talking about like a couple of hundred grand a year in your pocket. So I, I started looking around and saying, well, is there a better way? And I've been taking, for years, I've been taking courses and classes uh, and, and learning from people about how to trade and testing what I learned in order to get better at it. And I said, uh, well, maybe I could just start teaching people what it is that I'm doing. And that would at least support me until I could raise enough money to start this fund. And I looked around and I realized, dude, there's no regulation on telling people what you're doing. Like as long as you're honest and you don't lie to people and you don't go out there and say, I'm going to make you $10 million with, you know, just without blinking, right? Unless, you're, unless you just blatantly lie to people, nobody's going to regulate you. You're, you operate under what's called a, uh, oh, uh, it's, it's called a, uh, oh, uh, it's not a broadcaster's license, but essentially a special, a special uh, license that you get to operate under or omission that allows you to operate and tell people what you do. So I said, well, if I can't manage anybody else's money, I'll just tell them what I'm doing. And every time I place a trade, I'll email them and tell them this is the trade I took. And here's where I'm getting out. And here's where I'm, if I lose money, here's where I'm getting out. And so I started posting a bunch of videos online while I was in Afghanistan and then letting people join my email list. And I got a list of about a hundred guys on this list that were kind of really devout followers. They were, they were following what I did and, and they were very interested in the videos and we would comment and chat and stuff. And I said, okay, here's what I'm doing. I said, I sent an email to the hundred people and this is how terrible I was at this at the beginning. I said, uh, here's what I got. I said, if you'll give me $249 a month, I will send you every trade that I take, including my profit targets and my stops. And I'll send it to you the, immediately before I place the trade. So I'll even send it out before the trade is placed so you, have, you don't have to wait for the trade before you can take advantage of it. And of the 100 people, I got 10 of them to give me $249 a month. And instantly... I had $30,000 a year business and I didn't have to do any extra work except send an email. All the same stuff I was doing and all I had to do was send an email. And I thought, 
this is the shit. Like this, I, if I, I'm not even trying like really that hard. And I got these guys to give me 30, I just created a $30,000 a year income. Yeah. And, and so I very quickly, as soon as I could got out of that contract, went back home and I linked up with another guy who uh, had a connection in the Forex industry. And we ended up putting, uh, we put about 2000 people in a room and I worked with them for two weeks, teaching them what I had learned in my system for trading. And I said, Hey, if you want me to work with you for the next 90 days and coach you, uh, it's, I don't know what it was, 1500 bucks. And we ended up making about $220,000 after that two weeks. And after I paid everybody off, um, everybody got their cut. I was left with about $60,000 of profit and $60,000 of profit is about six months downrange. And I thought, well, this is pretty good. I got the 30 coming in and recurring revenue and I got another 60 coming in. And all I got to do is work with these people for the next, uh, for the next 90 days. Um, let's see if we can't grow it in the next 90 days. And our first full year in business, we did 780,000. Uh, in revenue. The next year we did 1.4 million. The year after that, I think we did 2.2 million and it just kind of, it kind of grew. Uh, and we just continued to try and every day serve our clients. Well, at, at that time, that industry was really, was full of a lot of scammers, a lot of fly by night companies creating products and systems and software. And then the next day they'd be gone. And I said, I want to build a real company. Like I, I legitimately want to help people because what I see are a lot of people who really want to manage their own investments, who want to learn how to trade, and they don't, there's nobody out there really that they can trust. And so I want to build an actual company with an actual brand. And we, I, we were successful at that. We still, to this day, Trade Empowered, which is the name of the company that I started, is one of the most well-known, well-respected, and largest education companies in the world. Uh, at least it was until I left. And, and now I don't, I don't even think it's running anymore. But uh, it was, it was, we were very, very successful at it. Mm, mm. Wow. So do you remember what piece of literature you first picked up? Like what was your first real finance book? Oh man, that's a really good question. Or, or, uh, um, and if you can't, or if you can't remember that, what do you think is the most important finance book for like a holistic outlook on uh, the stock market and trading? The trading and stock market are two different things. So if right. you're an investor, it's different than if you're a trader. And what I would say is um, trading in the zone is a really important book to read. Uh, there is a book by um, called uh, Market Wizards, which is another great book for traders. Remnants is a stock operator is a really good book. Um, and uh, those are three of the big ones that, that I typically recommend to people who want to trade and want to be good at it. Uh, it but here's the thing, for most people who get into trading, it's like a casino. It's basically a way for them to slowly and efficiently lose their money. You have to make it a career choice if that's what you want to do. And I, I happen to think the same thing is true for investing. Uh, I think if it's not a career choice for you, then you don't pick stocks, you just buy index funds. And then you just cross your fingers and hope and pray in 20 years, it'll be worth more than it is today. And that you'll have got your return. I... I don't invest in any stock stocks. I don't trade at all anymore because what I realized over the course of about eight years of teaching trading to people is that I cannot get any better return on my money than investing in myself. Um, I could take $10,000, I could put it into lead generation, 
have somebody send me a whole bunch of leads and within seven days, I could turn that $10,000 investment into $20,000. And of the 10 extra thousand dollars that I had in profit or that, that was generated out of that, roughly 50% of it was profit. I had a 50% profit margin on my business. I got a 50% return on my ad spend inside of seven days. And so you can't get that anywhere else. No stock can give that to you over any period of time. And not only that, I controlled everything. So I didn't have to worry about some, you know, somebody missing their earnings report or some coronavirus killing the stock market and it loses 2000 points. No, I control everything. And what I preach now is, is really um, controlling the source of your income. This is what I've learned after being an entrepreneur for, for 11 or well, 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 close to 15 years now, is that I want to control it all. I want to control where my money comes to me, how my leads come to me, what the product is that I sell, the back end and how I handle the support. Every aspect of how my wealth is, is created and how it is managed, I want to control. And, uh, and I can't do that in the stock market. There's too many variables that I don't get to control. Let me ask you a tough question. You're a kid, 18 years old, just came out of, out of high school, probably not going to go to college. You, you got a little, little, little job, nothing too crazy, probably uh, Bernie Sanders minimum wage type style. Uh, how do I become a millionaire? What's my first step? What, how should I treat these next 10 years of my life? Mm-hmm. Um, not as hard a question as you, as you might think. Very first thing is my, my laws for personal finance are real simple. You don't, after this, you don't need to read another personal finance book the rest of your life. Rule number one is spend less than you make. And rule number two is invest the rest in things you understand. That's how you become a millionaire. Now, invest the rest in things you understand. Yes. Just, now wanted, the next- just wanted to reiterate that. Invest in what you understand. <laughs> And here's the problem is that a lot of people, especially young people, come for that and they say, well, Jason, I don't know anything. I don't understand anything. Then the answer, the, then the right response is you spend less than you make and you invest the rest in you. You invest the rest in your human capital. You start learning, you start acquiring knowledge and learning skills that are going to benefit you in the long run. Now, what that is, in my opinion, largely depends on where your passion lies. I don't give a shit what it is you want to do with your life. You want to, I, whether you might want to, uh, I don't know, you might want to play video games all day, right? 10 years ago, if somebody said, if somebody said, I want to play video games all day, uh, their parents would have said, you're an idiot, son. Uh, you're crazy. You got to go get yourself a real job. Now you can make six figures a year playing video games all day. And as long as you're spending less than you make and doing what you love to do, guess what? You're rich. You're free. You can go anywhere in the world. You can travel the world. You can, you can, you can do whatever you want to. You're beholden to nobody. And so that's the trick. It's not how do I become a millionaire? It's how do I be free? How, how do I free myself of, uh, of, uh, of the hyper-reality that is being pushed on me from the education system, from the financial system, and uh, from our government, and, uh, and, and from, uh, from society as a whole? We, we got to get rid of that, and we got to unshackle ourselves. And consu- hyper-consumerism and living, within, uh, living up at your means is one of the biggest problems with that. And then sec- I, I'm, I'm just a big, I'm a big, big advocate of letting people understand or helping people understand that for the first time in human history, you know, we can consider our own satisfaction, our own, our own desires when it comes to the work that we do. 
That, that, that never, our fathers and grandfathers didn't get to consider that when they got married and they started working. I think I was telling you when we talked before, my great grandfather was a farmer. My, my grandfather was a farmer. My, they were successful enough that they told my dad that he was going to go to law school. So that's what he did. None of them got to consider what they wanted in determining what they would do with their lives. There is not a man, woman, child alive today that cannot consider um, their own satisfaction, their own personal fulfillment in the work that they do. Uh, all you have to do is decide what it is that you're passionate about and then consume everything you can on the subject. And when you invest in yourself and you acquire those skills, no one can stop you because you're in high demand from anyone and everyone. And, uh, and so that's what, that's what I tell people to do is, is, to, yeah, is to invest in themselves. That's powerful right there because um, I was the type of person who no matter what job I went into for the interview, I always got the job. And then one time I applied for a job and I didn't get it. So I was devastated. I was like, oh, you, I didn't get the job. What do you mean I didn't get the job? I'm overqualified for this shit. And then I had to do some introspection and realize I wasn't qualified for the job. So I started down my road, like you said, and started consuming every piece of literature. I read every single blog. I watched every single YouTube video. I bought the courses, everything, everything. And and I got to tell you, that shit been great since then. Right? Yeah. I haven't even needed a job. Right. And that's, that's the point is you start out learning so that you can make yourself, so you can insulate yourself at your job. And then what you realize is, is damn, I don't even need this job. Like, like this guy needs me a whole lot more than I need him. And that's when you really start to break free and you really start controlling your life and, and we achieve what I consider to be true independence is now you control the source of your income. Now you're not going to somebody else asking for a job. Other people are coming to you. You know, I think most people, most people are, are time prostitutes. They sell mm -hmm. themselves. They sell their life to the highest bidder. Right? And there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who buy other people's time, and there are people who sell their time. And you are either a guy whose time gets bought, or you are the guy who is buying somebody else's life. And I always want to be the guy who is expanding my wealth, my power, my influence on the back of somebody else who is too foolish, too ignorant, too lazy to do it himself. And that, yeah. that, that may come, that comes across as harsh to a, maybe some of your listeners, but here's the thing. That's the cold, hard reality that we live in is that we all have the same 24 hours in our day. I can't buy any more time for myself, but I can buy somebody else's time. And there's a sea of people who just graduated college who are waiting patiently with bated breath, begging, hoping, praying that I will buy their life from them and I'll do it. <laughs> so that I can expand my wealth and my influence and my power. But here's the thing, and this is what I want to get across to your listeners, is that everybody can do that. Anybody who wants to buy time rather than selling it can do it. It's just most people are unwilling to do what is necessary to have that kind of life. And so, uh, you know, if you want more, you got to become more. Right? You, you got to be more worthy of the life that you want to have. If you want to make 100000 200000 a million dollars a year, you got to become a man or a woman worthy of that life. And most people aren't. Mm, mm, mm. Bars. Bars. That's real talk, man. I mean, 
I'm hearing a lot of this stuff I tell the young boys out here, the young, the young cats out here, the young Thundercats. But what do you tell somebody that's a uh, 45-year-old, uh, they sitting at a nice cushy job, right? But they're locked into that job, like they're mm-hmm. married to it. How do they break free? They got a wife, they got kids. How do they break free from that trap? Is there anything specific that you would tell them? Yeah, there's there's a process to it. There there absolutely is. So let's say you got a guy who is uh, who's 40, 45 years old. He's making $150,000 a year, what he considers to be good money. I had this conversation the other day about a guy says, says, well, you know, the thing that keeps me from, you know, starting my own business is I got a job that I kind of like. I'm making good money. And I'm like, brother, what's good money to you? He's like, ah, oh, like eighty five thousand a year. I'm like, dude, that ain't good money. That that's a subsistence living. You making eighty five thousand dollars a year? You think that's good money? Um, maybe that's because everybody around you is making fifty. But I'm gonna tell you right now, eighty five thousand dollars a year is not a good living. Okay, eight hundred thousand dollars a year is a decent living. Eight million dollars a year is a good living. Right? That that's a good income. a year isn't enough for you to cover medical bills for a serious emergency. It ain't enough to put your kids through school. You are living paycheck to paycheck. You are one emergency away from bankruptcy, man. And you think you got a good job. You think you're making that good money, right? So that it's a mindset shift first and foremost that says, I am thinking far too small. Now, once we get out of that, now we live in an $85,000 a year life and we're making $85,000 a year. So we got we to gotta do rule number one, which is to spend less than we make. That might mean selling the car and buying a beater. It might mean downsizing out of the house that I, I'm using as a status symbol into something that's more manageable so that I can free up my time to start working on my dream, on my passion, on, on, on becoming free, on breaking free. And then the third thing that I tell people is I got rich from 10 to two while other people slept. I worked. So I, I work a regular nine to five. I would get done with that job. I would come back and I would work on my dream, on my business, on my freedom. And this is what I tell people. You're going to lose some sleep. You're going to lose some weekends. People are like, Oh, I don't have any time. And I'm like, you're full of shit. I know you are because I've been over at your house on a Sunday afternoon while we were watching the game together. You had four hours. Right. You just want to watch the game. Okay? You, you're not willing to sacrifice going to Susie's soccer tournament so that you can afford to give Susie a life that other people would envy. You're not willing to sacrifice today so that you can have the dream tomorrow. So don't talk to me about time. It's about commitment. You just don't want it. And that's what I find is most true is that you cannot, there, nothing can hold you back. Oh, I'm 45 years old. I, I'm living an expensive life and I, I, I don't have time. Okay. You're in charge of all of it. You get to choose. Come back to me when you're ready to make better choices and I'll help you. I'll, I'll see that you succeed. I will show you the way. I will give you the roadmap. I will be with you every step of that journey, helping you avoid the pitfalls and avoid all the, all the negative stuff that most people have to encounter. I will let you learn from me and learn from my experience so you don't have to pay for it in the market. But you got to come to me with a mentality that says, I'm ready. I'm sold out. I've had this, like, I have, I have a limited number of fucks to give in my life and I am fucked out, right? Mm-hmm. I have zero fucks left to give. I have to do this now because it's, it, it's now or never. I, mm-hmm. I, it's, not a, it's not a choice anymore. That's when I want to work with people. Word. 
Um, are you one of those people that wakes up at the butt crack of dawn? Maybe because you were in the military. You know, it's funny. I I wake up at all. I have some insomnia issues, I think, because sometimes I'll wake up at 3 a.m. and other times I'll wake up at 6. I rarely sleep past 6 in the morning. Um, but I found that that's not really a, a tr- determining factor in success. Uh, I know guys who work at 3 o'clock in the morning, and that's when they really do their best work. And so they... I like to get up early. I, my head is clearer. I've got less shit I'm worried about and um, I'm less drained. And so I tend to get up early and do most of my creative work in the morning. I know other people who are creative. They don't get creative until one, two o'clock in the, at night. And so if that's the case, yeah, sleep till, sleep till two in the afternoon. I mean, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. You don't have to conform to what society says your work hours need to be. That's the benefit of being free. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I tend to be an early riser. Yeah, now nah, you're right, man. I think I think uh, I think a lot of this comes out of time management. I know when I was down on my luck, um, I, I used to wake up at four a.m. just to get a, a a few extra hours in the day. I used to I used to wake up at four a.m. and I'd take a nap at like twelve, maybe one, and I'd sleep till like two, maybe three. And then I get up. It had to, I had to sleep for less than an hour because anything longer than that, you kind of like fall into REM sleep and then it's like hard to get back going again. Mm-hmm. But if you could cut your nap to like 45 minutes, it was like supercharging your energy. And then um, I just end up going to bed like stupid early um, just because I was exhausted. Um, but that that helped me. I don't now. Um, now my schedule is uh, weird. Like uh, you know, one day I'll go to bed at 2 a.m. Another day I'll go to bed at 10. One day I'll wake up at 6. One day I'll wake up at noon, <laughs> yeah. you know? But it depends, like, you know, because I'm having, like, these discussions with you and, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff happening in life. And then, you know, when your creativity kicks in, that's another thing, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people procrastinate, you know. Um, I know when I got my my blog off the ground, um, my old entertainment blog, which gave me my spark, really, um, you know, you could wait to post a story, but it, did, it didn't help you if you waited. <laughs> you know, you yeah, had yeah. to be like one of the first people to post that story or that music blog, you know. Um, so I used to, you know, rush home. I'd be at my homie's house, just, you know, smoking some weed. And I'd be looking on my phone, keeping track. And I'd be like, Yo, I'll be right back. And I'd be running home to like blog, you know. <laughs> right. Um, but now I'm the, I kept that same attitude where, you know, it could be eight o'clock at night. If something in my head like kicks in. I hop right up and do it, you yeah. know? So, so I can't not, can, can you, can, I can't delay. Like if I wake up three o'clock in the morning and all, all of a sudden an idea hits me or I've already got my list of things I need to get done that day. Sometimes it's just like, dude, I can't, there's no way I can go back to sleep. I don't know if you're like that or not. Nah, that's, that's the problem with my sleeping schedule. If, you know, I won't be able to sleep if something's on my mind. So you kind of got to, you have to kind of just get up and just make some tea and just knock yeah. it out. <laughs> You know, for me, it has more to do with I'm, I'm a creature of habit, mainly because I'm such a heavy procrastinator, which is another thing that I, oh, you know, I'm just I'm a procrastinator. I'm like, dude, so am I. I just organize my life in a way that doesn't allow me to do that. So I, you know, I get up and I have specific things I do at specific times of the day because I know that's when I'm number one, the most productive and it creates a block of time for me to do that task. Um, and I tend to, I'm like any other entrepreneur, I tend to run from whatever's urgent to the next urgent thing. So, you know, if it's something that can wait till tomorrow, it probably has to wait till tomorrow. But I, I, I create efficiency that way and keep from procrastinating just simply because 
if I didn't, I, you know, I, I, it's kind of funny because I, I have a strict no alcohol policy before five o'clock in the evening. Right now, you would think, oh, that's silly, Jason. Why would you need to do that? Because I'm an entrepreneur. I work from home. Like I'm in my, I'm in sweatpants a lot, and it'd be way too easy to be drunk at two o'clock in the afternoon, three days a week, if I didn't, if I wasn't disciplined about it and wasn't focused on on my mission and my goals. And so, that's another problem I think for a lot of people is they they want somebody they don't have the self discipline to do what needs to be done without somebody lording over them, forcing them to do it. And, and, you know, that those people will be selling their lives uh, for the rest of their life. And that's okay because mm -hmm. the world needs ditch diggers too. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm a procrastinator too, but I think kind of like you, um, the way I set my shit up, you kind of can't procrastinate because uh, my my to do list is split in between two two things must do and I'll get to it. <laughs> you know? yep. So yep, has to be done right now or eh. or it could wait. Yeah. So I you know at the end of the day, if I did my must dos, some of those Kuwaits end up sliding in between the must dos. Yep. Like oh, I don't feel like getting to that must do. What's on my uh, Ica wait list? <laughs> you know, like those little petty tasks you kind of got to yep. do. Like, yep. oh, update the web page. Oh, fuck it. I'll do that now. Let me yep. rewrite that copy. You know, like little shit like that. But the must-dos, I feel like, I think here's, here's an advantage that you you and I kind of have over a lot of people, which I think you might be able to tell me how they can overcome this. But what happens is this, right? You and I can look at what needs to be done for the business and immediately know what's going to move the needle, right? Because we've done it so many times. The novice doesn't have that ability. So they sometimes they'll be doing tasks that like are just dead end roads. Like they're right. never going to move the needle for the business. And I think a lot of people get caught up with that. So how do you mitigate that risk? How do you get around that? As a yeah, I, it's again, I've, I've got templates for stuff like that because that's a common problem is people end up starting their business or they're running their business and they're worried about anything except the stuff that's going to make them money. And that most of it is spending money on stuff like oh, I need business cards or I need, you know, a, a nicer website or whatever. And it's like, dude, no, you don't. What makes you, you need to go out there and find some fucking clients or customers, what you need to do. And that's the last thing on your list of things to do. And it's no wonder that you can't ever get anything going. And so yes. um, my business, I'm in the information business. So I, I teach for a living and, and I help people make more money and, and uh, you know, sell at higher prices, influence, persuasion, sales, copy and marketing, that kind of stuff. So um, I make money doing three things, uh, creating content, uh, delivering content and selling content. So if I'm not doing one of those three things, I'm not making money. I'm not working at my highest level. So my entire goal in life is to push off all of the other stuff that I, that needs done to somebody else or to a later date and constantly be creating content, selling content and delivering content. So today, for an example, got up this morning, uh, did the show, had an interview with, uh, with Thaddeus Russell, got done with that went over, created uh, some sales copy, reworked a landing page for some advertising I'm doing on YouTube, um, recorded a video, a new, a new sales video for that. 
that's all content creation or content delivery. Then I did a live stream for, uh, for my Instagram crew where I talked about you and I'm coming on your show and talked a little bit about mindset and some other stuff, content creation. Now I'm here doing this, creating content with you. My day is full of those three things because that's the stuff that makes me money. And frankly, anytime I have to do anything else, it just pisses me off. I'm just like, mm -hmm. I shouldn't have to do this. You know, I'm too successful to have to do this. Why am I doing this? Right. I should have somebody who does this for me. Yeah. And so um, that's what I would tell people is somewhere it, my, my, my job is different than your job, right? Your, your skill set, your highest and best use may be different than mine, but whatever it is, that's where you should be spending the bulk of your time, push off everything else as long as possible and just focus on that stuff. Yeah, I got a, um, for the people that bought my uh, marketing course, uh, Dominate Twitter it comes with my marketing book. Uh, I started up a mastermind group uh, every Saturday and I spent about an hour with them because, you know, I feel like those entrepreneurs don't know where to start. They have no direction and they're probably doing the things like you said, oh, let me get a logo. Oh, I need some new business cards. Wait, do I need a one sheet? And what about a PowerPoint presentation? <laughs> you know, like, you know, and, and, nope. and for me, I feel like the business to dictate when those things are needed, mm -hmm. right? Like if you're going out to get clients and they're consistently asking you about a landing page, okay, and you might need a landing page now, right? But business cards, like, are we still using business cards in 2020? Like, no, I, it's, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. And what, what's funny is I go places and everybody wants to exchange business cards. Do you have a business card? And I'm like, nah, I don't carry them. They're like, really? Like, you don't have a business card? And I'm like, no. And they go, well, how do people get a hold of you? I said, well, if I'm important enough to them, they'll remember my name. <laughs> um, you know, I shouldn't have to give you a business card. If you're really going to do business with me, you'll remember. You'll be like, hey, let me get my phone out. I don't want to lose your contact information. Will you give it to me right now? And then I will. I'm happy to. I'm like, I'll, I'll. and what's funny is I'm like, I can give you my, my phone number or my email address if you'd like. And most of them are like, oh, no, it's okay. And I'm like, well, then, then why did you need my business card? Because you like collecting them. Because you like working on stuff that doesn't move the needle. Because because that's who you are. And yeah, no, I don't I don't want to waste my time with you. I, I get calls all the time. Hey, man, just wanted to hop on a quick call with you and, and see if there's some ways that we could work together. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. I value my time too much. I, the one thing that is non-renewable, non-replenishable, and non-refundable is my time. It is far more valuable than my money. I will spend my money frivolously on things that have no purpose in life, but I will never waste a second of my time. Not if I can help it, right? And so these guys tell me, I'm like, no, listen, if you have a specific proposal, I'm all over the internet. Google my name, not to be arrogant or, you know, a dick, but Google my name. I'm everywhere. If you don't know what I do and don't know how we can work together, I don't want to talk to you um, because I, it's just time is too valuable. What about, what about people that want to, let's grab coffee. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Let's grab coffee and chat. Yeah. No, man, I'm working on my dreams, man. I'm working on my future. I don't, I don't have time to sit around and waste time with you. Think about, uh, no. think about the amount of time we lose to go sit down for coffee with somebody who's probably gonna try and hit us with an MLM speech. Like you literally have to take 30 minutes of your day to prepare to leave the house. Mm -hmm. Then you have to get in your car and drive or whatever to get there. That's another 15, 20 minutes. Hopefully it's local. That's close to an hour of your day is gone just to deal with this question mark. Cause you don't know what's gonna come of this meeting, right? Because it's non-specific. Yeah. Then you get there and you find out the person just 
wanting to pick your brain. You didn't get paid for that time, right? So then they yep. go about their day. It's like two hours, three hours are gone out of your day. That's, you know, if you, if you charge $150 an hour, like I do, you know, look at how much money is those. It's 700 bucks. Like what the fuck is going on here? You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a 750. No, you're you're absolutely for. right. People, people have no concept of what they'll wait in line for an oh, hour for, you know, for a cheeseburger, for a free cheeseburger, buy one, get one free uh, for a $5 cheeseburger. That's an hour of your life that you never get back. They, they devalue their time to a point that it's just fascinates me. It's like you care very little about the most important resource that you have. And you can tell a lot. You, I can tell instantly where somebody's at financially based on how they treat their time. It's really easy. Real talk. Shout to Chad. He said, big dick talk going down. Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> what up, Chad? Chad's the homies. Hotel. Um, hotel. Um, hotel uh, crew right there. Hotel homies. Shout out to Uncle Hotel. I'll see you in the box. Appreciate you coming through. Um, But yeah, I hate that. And I always feel like, I, I don't even like respond to those emails. Like, because I, I don't want to be the guy to be like, no, like, you know, but I, sometimes I respond and I'm just like, well, what do you want to talk about? Like, like, what do you want Yeah. <laughs> before I like commit my time? Like, what am I going to get out of this? And what are you getting out of this? You know, even if it's just to help you tell me exactly what the problem is, because I might not need to leave my house. I might not need to schedule a, a phone call with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Most um, of the time, most of the time you don't. Yeah. I've even, I, I push all that stuff off to Amy now anyway. And Amy's just learned because she started hitting him up early with this stuff. And I'm like, if a guy wants to meet, ask him exactly what he wants to meet, when, when he wants to meet, what he wants to talk about, how long he thinks it's going to take, and then I'll decide whether or not I want to do it. Yeah. And most of the time, they don't have any plan. And it all, all, it, all they're trying to do is waste your time. Yeah. And I, don't, I have no tolerance for it. Zero. What's the best way for people to approach guys, I guess, for advice? I know a lot of people talk about, you know, one of them, obviously, is know who you're, you know, do the research on the person you're talking to. Yeah. You know, um, but how, how would you, you know, approach my maybe online or? Well, I, I got one, I got one earlier today from a, from a gal on Instagram and she just said, Hey, I, 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 I'm a listener to your show. I'm, I've been listening for years. I'm really on board with what you talk about and I'm trying to take the right steps. Um, but here's where I'm having a hang up. Can you, can you throw me a piece of advice or some, some bit of knowledge that might help me in my direction? Well, I love doing that. If I, as long as it's not a terribly complicated question and you don't send me three pages of your life story, then I, I love to respond to that. I, I think showing that you are trying to actively take steps towards that, that goal and what I'm constantly preaching is the easiest way to get a response out of me. Um, a lot of times it has to do with time, but again, coming to somebody and saying, I, I, I like mentoring people. I, I get paid to mentor people, but I also talk to people who, who have, who, who really just are trying to understand. And so I, I get lots of friends or friends of friends that says, Hey, I, 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 I'm, I know so-and-so and I know what you do and just listen, can, this is my situation. I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. Would you mind, can you share with me what I, some advice? And as long as it's in an area of expertise that I can, I'm qualified to talk on, um, I'm happy to do that. And, and oftentimes I'll even sit down with them, but I don't ever go to them. That's, that's mm -hmm. another thing I don't, I don't mm -hmm. understand. Like I'm not driving across town. Like there's a coffee shop down the road from where I live. We can meet there a block from my house um, or not, but yeah. I'm not going anywhere to, to help you, you know, for free. 
now you want to pay me some money, I'll fly halfway around the country to talk to you right, and do. Right. Yeah. So, but that there's, there's different levels, I guess. And so I think if you're, if, if you're legitimately trying to learn from somebody and you don't have any money, all you got's a dream and, uh, and, and some time, that's the easiest way for me. I think, uh, well, what I've told people in the past was uh, start off with A, B questions, this or that, you know, hey, you know, I was wondering. Oh, that's great. Me. Yeah, that's really smart. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, simple is better. Yeah. Like, you know, do you like this page or that page, this word or that word? That way I can look at it and go, uh, hey, <laughs> right. you know, and, and this is why. Right. Like, that's a lot easier. And that's a, that's a good way. I think once you start getting the dialogue, and you start building trust with the person that's not going to waste your time. Usually we're more willing to uh, to work with you and help you out. Yeah. Um, so now a lot of people are talking about AI gobbling up jobs and destroying our future. What's the uh, what's the AI future uh, risk plan? Like, how do we how do we tackle automations coming? They're going to be ripping people out of their jobs. AI is going to be doing like accounting is not even going to be a thing anymore. Right. right. Like if you're going to school to be an accountant, you're done. Computer's going to do that. Like the AI is going to do that. You're just having an AI assistant or something like that. So well, even what, even part time. Well, but first of all, that is absolutely happening. AI and automation are going to kill a lot of jobs over the next twenty years. Um, it's unavoidable. So stop. You know, instead of sitting around complaining about it, start taking some actionable steps now uh, before it comes for your job, so that you're prepared for it. And it's it's real simple. Just move. You're in control. You're in charge. You can decide whether or not you're going to allow it to affect you or not. Um, you can even think of things like when we talk about AI, everybody thinks about robots that are going to be going in and, and doing all the work. I, and I'm not thinking about AI in that sense. I'm thinking about it in terms of autonomous cars. Right. I, I remember. Um, reading a book years ago, and one of the guys uh, was a stock trader, and he ha had made enough money in stocks that he had a driver that took him to work every day. And I can just remember thinking, dude, that's the most awesome. I want to make so much money that I got a driver, and I'm going to name him Jeeves, and he's just going to drive me around everywhere I want to go. <laughs> and uh, now, in, in 20 years, there won't be anybody alive who can't buy a car that will drive them anywhere they want to go. That's the artificial intelligence that I'm talking about. And that's a relatively complex AI. Right? There are thousands of things that that car has to be aware of at all times and has to be processing. So if they can create autonomous cars, all Uber drivers are going to be gone. Lyft drivers, all these part-time hustles that people have in this gig economy are going away. Right? And if they can create something that complex, do you think they can get somebody who can make your fast food order? You think they can get somebody who can build a house? Uh, it's, that, those are all very repetitive skills that once there's a blueprint of what needs to be done and all of the stuff is there, artificial intelligence will be able to do that. So what's gonna happen when all construction jobs or the vast majority of construction jobs are gone? What's gonna happen when all these gig economy jobs go away? What's gonna be left? Well, as I said before, for the first time in human history, we get to consider personal fulfillment in the work that we do. And what are gonna be left after AI, after this kind of this revolution, this evolution in, uh, in our economy takes hold are going to be jobs that deal with creativity and uh, and complex processes, and so things like uh, things like music, things like uh, education, um, uh, things like uh, uh, art, those types of things are going to be are still going to be things that human beings do. Um, information is still going to be something that's going to be of extreme value to people. As the current education system dies off, I was talking with Thaddeus Russell on my show today about it. 
And the current education system is dying, uh, the, the university system. And what's gonna, what it's going to be replaced with are guys like you and me who are selling what we know to people who desperately need it. And, and you know, I've read your book. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's well worth the money. Anybody who's on the fence about spending the money, do it. Do it three times um, because it's Appreciate a really that. valuable book. And, uh, and so that's the kind of stuff. I buy information like that all the time. It's why I, I, accredit, I credit it to my success is my willingness to, to buy other people's experience and other people's time um, and failures so that I don't have to experience it myself. And I think the most valuable business one can be learning today is an information business, is selling what they know. Um, if you don't know anything, then go start spending your money on stuff that you really like learning about. Um, if you go to YouTube right now to learn anything, chances are the guy you're learning it from is somebody who makes his living selling that information to people. And he's selling you small bits and pieces of it uh, so that he can raise awareness for what, who he is and what he does. That, that's, there are a massive number of people in this industry already, and it's growing. Um, it's going to grow. It, it doubles about every two or three years now. And mm. so, I mean, businesses alone spend about $320 million a day, a day on information. And that's just small businesses. Mm. Uh, we spend about $2 billion a year on self-help type personal stuff like weight loss and uh, uh, psychiatry and those kinds of things, that type of help. So mm -hmm. whatever it is that you love to do, whatever it is you do now, uh, strong likelihood is you could be making more money teaching other people how to do it and teaching other people how to, you know, how to do, how to become what you are. Uh, and so I, I spend a lot of my time trying to convince people that they need to quit their jobs and start their own businesses. And the, the, the common question I get is, okay, but what would I do? And the easiest, cheapest business that I know of is an information business. And so that's where I direct people if they're interested in that. Yeah, if they know something. <laughs> yeah, if they know something. Like I said, we talked about before, if you don't know anything, then go learn something. You got um, I, I, Yeah, I'll give you an example. I wanted to learn uh, how to do YouTube advertising. I've really been focused heavily on that. And I spent about $1,000 to take a, uh, a YouTube course on YouTube advertising. And a great course, by the way, by a guy uh, named John Petherathy, I think is how he's pronounced his name. He's a Brit. And uh, not only am I going to gain the benefit now of being able to advertise on YouTube and make a profit off of that, but now I also know everything that he knows. See, now I also know how to teach other people how to do YouTube advertising. So I can now add that to my value for my clients. Okay. For a thousand dollars, I will probably recoup a hundred times that investment over the yeah. course of the next 12 months, right? That's, I do it all day, every day. And there's not a man or woman listening to your show right now that can't do the same thing. Yeah, no, it's just, that's correct. I know, uh, I watched two people in particular, and I gotta say no names. One of them was a young lady. She started a marketing agency after reading my book. <laughs> oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. And another dude, he, uh, he, he sells a course and he's making big paper now. Uh, but you know, some people pick up the information and actually take action. Some people don't, uh, but my outlook on the future, I feel like for the people that don't start planning now, you're either going to be like, um, I don't know for the men, I know the women are going to be prostitutes. They're going to be I prostitutes. A, I think a lot of women are going to turn to prostitution or being a housewife. Um, because a lot of the jobs that they choose are going to be, um, you know, 
And then I think there's another one is probably like therapy. A lot of people are going to need to go into uh, the therapy business. Um, for the men, I don't know. I feel like crime is probably going to spike. Uh, what else? What else could happen to a man? I don't know. Those are all really negatives, and I tend to have a very positive outlook on the future. I, I think that as uh, this transition is going to happen rapidly, um, but when we look at the declining middle class, we know the middle class is shrinking. But by every statistic and measurement, what we see is that the the poor aren't the poor aren't getting poorer. What's happening is that middle class is shrinking, and most of the people are moving up. There's a small group that's moving down, but even the poor in America is getting smaller as a, you know, as a percentage. And so more people are becoming uh, upper middle class uh, or, or what would be considered wealthy, uh, which in America is really not that much money, folks. I mean, it's, it's crazy. If you make 150 grand a year, you're in the top 5% of wage earners in, the, on, on, in America, like the top 5%, if you make 150 grand a year, you yeah. do not have to make that much money in this country. Yeah. Um, I don't know how anybody lives on less than a quarter million dollars a year. Like I know that, <laughs> like I know people do it. I'm just like, yeah. dude, I got four kids. You know, I, I'm, I'm like, I don't know how that works. Um, <laughs> not and have any kind of like real life. Yeah. Uh, but, and, you know, and, and I hope I say all these things and I know they're designed hotel to be shocking, right? That I'm, I'm doing it intentionally because I want to try and change your mindset. You got some people out there making 30, 40 grand a year. And I'm talking about how I don't know how you can live on less than a quarter million. I, I want to shock you into thinking bigger. I want to shock you into having greater goals and, and getting outside because most of us surround ourselves with people who are just like us. If you make 50 grand a year, your closest friends make about the same amount of money. You don't know anybody who's making a million bucks a year, right? You don't, that doesn't exist in your world. And so we confine what, what reality is and what can be to what we see around us. And, and if I can do anything for your listeners, I hope that you don't look at this as arrogance, but as an attempt to shock you into thinking bigger uh, about what your life could be than it currently is. I love it. I love that. I love that talk, man. You know, yeah. I love it. You know, say I don't know how anybody can live underneath two hundred fifty thousand either. <laughs> how well, dare you? <laughs> uh, I've done it. I don't like it. It's terrible. It's awful. Why would why? It's, like I said, I mean, it's it's making money. I, I did a little thing. I said, uh, I send an, I, I'm trying to send an email a day out now. It's called a Seinfeld email where I just basically send an email talking about my life. And at the very end of the email, I push people over to uh, my freedom accelerator program, which is about 40 bucks a month. Um, and I got a whole bunch of stuff in there that I, I, I work with clients. Uh, that's my lowest, lowest entry level product. And, uh, and I sent my first one out and got three people to take me up on the offer. And then, you know, didn't get anybody the next day. And the day after that, I got two people. And so I'm talking with my audience about it. And I said, think about this for a minute. Let's say that I, I, I only get like a person every other day from my email. So over the course of 30 days, I get 15 people in my program that are paying me 40 bucks a month. And I do that every day for the next year. Uh, you know, that means at the end of the year, I'm going to have 180 people that are, that are subscribed to my little thing. That's $7,000 a month. That's $84,000 a year. And I send one email, right? Now I got to do some follow-up. I got to work with those guys. But really, you start, when you put it into perspective you're like that, you're like, dude, $84,000 a year, it really ain't that hard uh, to make that money. 
what you got to do is you got to spend a whole lot of time, effort, and energy getting to the point where you can give some, get somebody to give you $39 off one email, right? And most people won't do that. But the making of the money, I mean, I'm not roofing houses in Georgia in July, right? You know, I'm not pouring asphalt in, in Alabama in, in the dead of summer, right? I sit at my desk all day. I talk to you. That's how I make my money. It's, it's like um, you talk about working hard. I work a lot, but I don't work hard. And it's not, it's not that hard to replace the income that you're currently making uh, with income that you control and with a life that sets you free. And I just, I, that's, that's my message. That's what I preach. That's my mission is to help as many people as possible be free because I just, it's, a, it, it's the only way to escape. It's the only way to protect yourself and your family and your future. Word, word. Um, Super Chats, Mary O'Donnell, more the year. What's up, girl? She said, I'm going to finish this on replay. I have more exhaustion. Good stuff. Thanks, H.A. and uh, Jason. Matthew Everson says, isn't Ben Settle a hotel? Are you familiar with Ben Settle? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Ben Settle is, uh, he actually, uh, he actually is the, one of the guys I talk about is he's, he writes an email a day and he's got one product. He sells like a $97 uh, monthly newsletter. Email and players. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I need to get this. It's like the fourth time I've talked about him. I don't actually own his newsletter. I need to go get it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he, he talked about it. And then Russell Brunson, who started ClickFunnels, talks about him a lot in terms of uh, his method called the Seinfeld email thing. But he sends one every day, uh, come hell or high water, 365 days a year, uh, just talking about his life. And then at the end, he's like, hey, go get my newsletter. And dude, dude just built a really nice business off of that. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. That's somebody I, uh, I follow. Uh, we communicate every once in a while. He put me in his book. Got a copy around here. He sent me a copy of book, uh, How to Make Money Off of Trolls. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> trolls trolls are, are, are quite lucrative. Um, yeah. Yeah, Ben Sell is a real good guy. Um, what would you tell your younger self, you know, your, your 20, 20-year-old self? What would you tell mm -hmm. him? Oh, man. I don't know. I, what I would tell him uh, is that it's, it's, it's not going to be as bad as you think. Like it's one of those things where I, there are lots of times that I wanted to do something and then I waited and I hesitated thinking that it was it, it, it just the wrong timing or, you know, there's a lot of risk involved with that. Dude, every regret I have right now is by not making a decision sooner like not choosing what I wanted to do as quickly as humanly possible. I make decisions very fast. Um, like lightning quick, scary quick. And uh, I, I, I do that now because I know that waiting doesn't solve anything. It's just, it doesn't help me advance myself. And so I would tell my younger self, look, just do it. Just whatever you want to do, just do it. Throw, throw the money at the wall, give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, what's the worst that could happen? This is what I try and tell people. I got more than most. And I constantly tell myself, what's the worst that could happen? You could go bankrupt. You could lose everything, all of your money and all of your stuff. They could put it out on the street and sell it off in order to pay your debts. That's the worst that could happen, okay? Money is the easiest thing in the world to replace, okay? If you got money problems, that's the easiest problem for you to solve. Try solving cancer, right? Try solving the death of a child or of a loved one, right? Those are, those are, some of those are impossible things to solve. Money problems, those are easy problems. 
I don't, I don't care about any of this. You see this, you know, the studio and the lights and all this stuff. I don't care about any of this. Get all go away tomorrow. I don't care about that. I'll risk it all on trying to hit my dream because I don't want at the end of my life to look back and say, well, what if I just gone a little bit harder? What if I tried that one thing? What if I risked a little bit more? Man, could I have created uh, even more? Could I have been more? Right? It's not about the money. It's about testing who you are as a person, your own limitations as a man. Mm. And, and for me, I don't want to go to my grave wondering, well, did I leave something on the table? I want to know exactly where my limit is. And I want to test that every day. Mm-hmm. I've been, um, you know, that's why I tell a lot of people, man, just do it, man. You know, you got, I, sometimes I'm, I'm, I find it mostly with women women come to you for help and like, Oh my God, you know, I need help. All right. What's up? What do you need help with? Oh, you know, I want to do this thing. I'm like, all right, so start. What do you mean? Just start, just start, just start. Where do I start? Just what do you think you need to do? I, I always lead them to the answer. I say, like, what do you think you need to do? I think I should do this. You should. Have you done it yet? <laughs> no. What are you waiting for? <laughs> I think for, for a lot of women and uh, um, I think a lot of women are still looking for permission. I don't work with a lot of women. Most of the women I work with are, you know, come from the financial industry or, or you know, I, I have a few in health and wellness. When I, I work with, I have a client who's in the yoga business. Um, I work with a lot of different types of businesses, but uh, it's, I find that a lot of them are still in a mentality where, oh, I need somebody to give me permission to do this. And nobody has, no, nobody has the right to give you permission to do something in your own life. You're the only one. And if you're sitting around waiting for somebody to tell you that it's okay to start, you're going to be waiting forever. Let me solve it for you. It's time. You are worthy. Go start. You have permission. Go. And sometimes that's just what they, somebody needs. Um, but I find that women more than men uh, have this problem. And I don't know if it's a cultural thing or if it's a, uh, the, way pe the way girls are raised, but they just tend to be more subservient and, and they tend to be more cautious uh, and, and, just they don't take action. Uh, well, and a lot of guys don't either, but they they tend to wait for someone to tell them it's okay. And they're afraid to fail. They're afraid of judgment. Well, what if I do this? What do people think? Who cares what the fuck they think? They ain't paying your bills. Exactly. They don't think they're not even thinking about you, lady. Nope. <laughs> if if they start thinking about you, you're doing something right. <laughs> yeah. If you lose, if you lose, well, I, here's the thing I'm going to tell you is that if you get any even uh, even an ounce of success in your life, there's going to be a ton of people, no matter who you are, who are going to be standing in line waiting to trash you. You know, those haters are going to come out the second that you start to come up. I mean, I, I, your audience probably knows this better than any, than any audience alive is that the second that you start to make something out of yourself, there's going to be somebody standing there saying, who do you think you are? <laughs> well, whoa, whoa, wait, wait just a minute. Yeah, I, I know you. We're from the same neighborhood, man. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, go, don't go put your, your fancy pants on just yet, okay? <laughs> I, I remember you in grade school, right? You're not anything special. And they do that. Some people do it out of love, and some people do it because your success reflects on their failures. Mm. And that that's a very, very serious issue. When you start letting other people dictate how successful you will become, it's, uh. it's critical you don't fall into that trap. Uh. Real talk. I, you, I'm hearing a couple of people voices now and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know you, man. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I've, and I had people in my life like that too. 
Uh, people mm. all along the way who told me I was stupid for doing what I was doing and that I was never going to, I mean, shoot, I changed the direction of my show about three years ago uh, because I didn't like it. I built the largest uh, libertarian and economic podcast in the world. And um, I decided I didn't want to talk about that stuff anymore. I wanted to talk about the stuff we're talking about now. And man, they were like, you're going to be a failure. You don't know what you're doing. This is going to be the biggest mistake of your life. And I'm like, none of you fucks have ever been able to assemble three people in a room together. I got 30,000 a day listening to my show. Okay, <laughs> come back to me when you know what you're talking about. Because mm. you, you don't, you're not qualified to give me advice. Okay, mm. you don't rate. Okay, and that's, and that's the problem is that we're, looking, we're listening to people give us advice who got no business. Okay, if they're not, if you don't look at them and their life isn't what you want, then stop listening to their advice. Yeah. Okay, now here's the thing. Somebody who can't make a dollar might have a good marriage. Okay, so when he gives you marriage advice, listen to that guy because that's mm. something he's qualified to teach you on. Okay, mm. if you don't go to him for money advice or investment advice, do you? No, mm. you don't. That guy who's 300 pounds, you know, eating barbecue and sucking down a soda, that guy starts giving you health and wellness advice, run. <laughs> He's not qualified. Yeah. And we spend our lives not just listening to people, but heeding their advice, not moving, not taking action, because this guy said, oh, man, yeah, no, I tried that once and failed. Oh, really? You failed at your diet once. So that means I should stop eating healthy forever. I get it. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. How about you just go back to doing what you're doing? Because I, I, I'm going to move. I'm going over here and, and I'm going to have to cut you out. That, that's yeah. what we need. Yeah, I call it un I call it qualified and unqualified opinions. So if you ask somebody something, they should uh, have some sort of uh, expertise in that field. And sometimes people give you uh, what do they call it um, uh, unsolicited advice. So I say if the unsolicited advice is coming from a qualified person, you might want to listen. If it's coming from an unqualified person, you probably don't want to listen. So you just got to look at people's records, you know, their 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 background. Yeah, before you you because you know you got even your parents to tell you like oh no that's not good business oh yeah what do you know about it like I one time I was talking to this girl um I ain't gonna say who she is but uh she's a banker she works for one of these big banks nice job and we we're talking about Bitcoin and so we were arguing about you know why why is it a good investment so she goes who's got money to buy a whole Bitcoin and I just like threw a, a face palm like not you. <laughs> I'm like, yo, you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy, you know, a dollar worth of Bitcoin. She's like, really? I'm like, see, like, we can't even have this conversation. How are you going to tell me something's a bad asset yeah. and you know nothing about it? Who's yeah. got $10,000 laying around just to buy a Bitcoin with? <laughs> you know, like 80% of society couldn't handle a $1,000 bill if it came up in front of them, you know, and that's, that's people making a hundred grand a year. That's why I say this is, this is not a, this is not a problem of, of you don't make enough money is that you spend every penny that you make you know, guys making a hundred thousand quarter million dollars a year. They're spending all that money as quick as they get it. And, and they're, they're saddled. They're, they're enslaved. They're in a form of, of slavery because they can't, they're not free to leave. They're not free to move. They can't get out of their job. They can't move to a different city. They're stuck. Um, that's the worst kind of life I can imagine. So, yeah. I, and if, if that's the way your audience feels, they're right. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Logan Boxing. I appreciate you on the next Super Chat. Thank you, man. Keep them coming. You know what I'm saying? We're going to make sure Hotep Khan is big this year. <laughs> um, 
So you said you got out of the politics. Why you why'd you leave the politics gig? Mainly because I looked around after doing that for about four years. Like I said, I built a really successful show. And my goal was to raise awareness for the ideas that I, that I believe in, which are primarily don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. Uh, I believe in personal responsibility. And I think that the world functions better when we don't aggress against people. We don't start shit. And when we don't steal from people. And, uh, and when we all kind of have personal responsibility for our own lives. And so I was preaching that message and over about four years of trying to make people aware of uh, how terrible government was and, and how everything would be better if we just had more of the things that I thought were important. I noticed that I didn't have, a, I didn't have any impact at all on politics, none. Like I, I didn't get a single guy elected, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the 2016 election came around and Gary Johnson lost miserably, right? It was just like, I, I had no effect, no impact. I made a lot of money. I became, that, that show made me a lot of money. How? I, how? Uh, through advertising revenue. Yeah, that, that show, the show generates uh, at that time was generating somewhere around 300 grand a year. So how do you how did the advertisers buy you and they contact you directly? You're a part of a network or I went through an ad I went through an ad agency. So Westwood One handles all of my advertising. So I went to them as I was the first show that they picked up on their podcast network. Um, and uh, they started selling advertising for my show and they get a cut of the revenue. They get about 40% of it. So uh, you know, I don't keep all that, I didn't keep all that 300 grand, but uh right. Then you also have like on the back end, the course sales. And like you said, you got your book that you sell. So, you know, it can, if you build a big enough audience, then you can do really well with it. Right, right, right. Okay. My bad. I just, you know, just wanted to ask. But um, yeah, I mean, dude, if you want me to hook you up with the Westwood folks, I will just let me know and I'll, I'll hook you up. We'll get some advertisers for you. Yeah. I always wondered, you know, I like where did people find advertising? Can I, I figured it was, it was, you would, you went to an agency though. Yeah. The the big advertising, the big advertising advertisers only go through agencies because they don't want to buy specific podcasts. What they want to do is go and say, Hey, I got, I got $10 million for advertising. Where should I put it? And then they, they, they give you the stuff. So logistically they couldn't manage it. No, they, they couldn't. And they wouldn't want to anyway, because it doesn't, it doesn't cost the advertiser any more money. So everybody kind of gets a little piece of the action. Right. But uh, anyway, so after that, I, but I, what I did was, so I made no, no effect on politics. I didn't really feel like I changed the culture at all. But what I was getting was every once in a while, I'd be talking about the stuff we've been talking about today. And I get an email from somebody who said, you know what? You've been telling me to know my value and, and to become invaluable at my job. And, and I went in and I told my boss and I laid out all the reasons. And I said, you know, there are, there's another company that I'm thinking about going to. And he said, not only did he give me a raise, but he gave me a, a, a truck, you know, a new truck that I've been asking for to do my job. And just wanted to thank you for giving me the courage to get out there and like know my worth and, and to improve myself. And these, these emails kept coming in. And I said, man, I'm not having any effect at all on politics, but I'm, ch- I'm helping some people change their lives for the better. And the truth is, is that government politics is downstream of culture. Government is a reflection of our culture. Uh, n- nothing illustrates this better than gay marriage. You know, gay marriage switched, changed like, you know, like a snap of a finger after enough people became comfortable with the idea. And then politicians who are against it or for it, and they, they're just a reflection of our culture. And so if we want to change 
a politics and government, we have to change our culture. And to change the culture, you got to change your neighborhood. To change your neighborhood, you got to change your friends and family. And to change them, you've got to be an example of that change. So you got to change you first. And so I focus on that first tier change you. You think you got a better way of doing things? You think you got a better way of living? You think your ideas are better? Be a living example of those ideas. And I happen to believe that wealth is directly tied to your freedom. The more wealth you have, the more influence and the more power you are going to have. And so I stand as a living, breathing example of, of, the, of the message I preach, which is I have done it and I will show you how. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, I think, is how we ultimately are going to change our culture for the better. Mm -hmm. Somebody said something about History Channel experience, Mr. What-A-Day. Oh, yeah. For, I was on a TV show for a short period of time. I did a, uh, after I started my podcast, about a year after that, History Channel came to me and said, uh, hey, we're doing a TV show about Nikola Tesla. Do you want to, do you want to be on the show? And uh, you want to host the show? And I said, yeah, I'll host the show. So for about five episodes, I hosted a TV show on Nikola Tesla. Oh, wow. How was that? You like that? or not? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. It's, it doesn't pay very well. Like it, what, man, it's like, I think I got like, um, you get like, I got overpaid probably. And I think I was making five or 10,000 an episode or something. So, but it's like, it's six months of your life. And every other week you're on location somewhere and you're like, dude, this is way too much work for 50 grand. Like I, I, I will never do that again for that amount of money. Yeah. Uh, but you know, if it got really popular, well, then you become a Vanderpump or something like that. Then you, then you're making that big money because all the endorsement deals come back. But, uh, yeah, I, I, all I did was just get paid to show up and it was fun experience, but, uh, yeah, I probably wouldn't do it again. <laughs> nah, that's dope. That's dope. So, um, as we close out here, I just want to ask you one last question. How is it exactly, you know, we come in through the, uh, jasonstapleton.com funnel, um, what describe what my experience is like from the time I enter the funnel to the time I become a client and then tell us about the, the client experience. Mm. Well, there's a couple of different tracks that you can take. I, I've got different clients that I work with. So the, the easiest way, if somebody wants to work with me is the first thing I do is I, you want them to identify themselves and kind of raise their hand. So as I said, um, anybody who's ready to kind of like take control of their life and they're like, Jason, I heard what you're saying. I'm on board. I'm really interested in that. Um, I send them to controlthesource.com and at controlthesource.com, it's a, it's a, you sign up for just a, an event. It was an event I held for my clients, about 600 of them, where we work on mindset and we work on establishing what is your, what kind of life do you want to have, right? So what kind of work do you want to do? What are you passionate about? What do you know about? And then how do we overcome all these negative feedback loops that are keeping you from taking action towards that goal? And then after that event, I, I make an offer to them and I say, hey, if you want to join my Freedom Accelerator program, um, then I would like to work with you to help you make those goals a reality. And it's $39 a month. It's as cheap as I could possibly make it. And we have an entire private network that resembles Facebook. It's called the Nine Figure Network. And uh, where you can, you get to talk to and gain knowledge and skill from not just me, but all the other people on the platforms. We have guys in there who are just starting their businesses and guys who are doing $100,000 a month in revenue in every industry imaginable. And I've got a whole bunch of training in there that I do. And uh, even this studio, we, we just built this studio out and I've been recording every step of that process for everybody on the network. And you get all of it for just that 39 bucks, which is, uh, you won't find, you will not find that level of quality education anywhere 
um, for even a fraction of that price. Uh, you probably have to add a zero to get anywhere close to it. And they don't have the network that we have. And so we've built something really special for people who are trying to change their lives. Uh, and then I have another group of clients who are typically doing somewhere over half a million dollars a year in revenue uh, who are looking for specific help. So maybe you run an investment advisory firm and you're trying to increase the, the number of sales that you get or the amount of money that you bring in and you want somebody to help you specifically with your sales process. It's more of a one-on-one -on -one consulting work that I do. And uh, that's on a case-by-case -case basis. They email me and we talk about it. But for the vast majority of people, I'm really interested in this group of folks who are from zero to $100,000 a year in revenue. It's the largest chunk of people on earth uh, who are trying to start a business. It's the largest group of business owners. They're the ones who need the most help and until we started our program, there was nothing available for them of, of any kind of quality. And uh, it's sad because I, people say, oh, you know, vast majority of part-time, our businesses are just part-time. And I'm like, you think that's on accident? Like, you think that's intentional that, that people just like, oh, yeah, I just want to work my ass off to not make very much money and spend all, every waking hour of free time trying to build this business and then not have it make any money, Right. No, they're working part-time businesses because they don't know how to make them full-time businesses. They don't know how to turn that side hustle, that passion into a full-time income. And I built what I, I mean, again, tooting my own, this I'm not ashamed to say. I think we built the very best program on earth for those kind of people. And I'm really excited to talk about it. That's dope, man. That's dope. So I think jasonstapleton.com is the best place for people to reach you, right? Yeah, controlthesource.com. You can go to jasonstapleton.com. I got lots of stuff on there that you can check out. But if, you, if you're really interested in the stuff we talked about today, go to controlthesource.com. It's just a URL I bought that takes you to a, a landing page where you can sign up for the webinar. Or Jason, and like I said, that's, that's probably, you'll get more value probably out of that than anything else. Dope. Awesome, man. Great talk. Thank you for, for coming on the show this week. Definitely appreciate it. There's a couple of gems I'm going to have to go back through and, and, um, you know, what I do is a lot of times I take these lectures and um, I mean, these interviews and I turn them into lectures for my kids. And I said, you hear, you hear what he said? Did you hear that? <laughs> Did you hear that shit, nigga? <laughs> <laughs> you hear what that man said? You know, so like these little like sound bites are, are really helpful. Uh, these interviews are, are a great library and great resource for people. Um, the, the audio from this will be up in a few days. My daughter interns with me, so she'll put that audio up by Sunday. It'll be up on SoundCloud, so people can go get that. It'll be under uh, Big Brain Talk uh, playlist, so you guys can get glued in there. But yeah, man, great talk, man. Um, I guess I'll see you on the, on the timeline. Yeah, thank you, man. I really appreciate it, and thanks to your audience for listening. No doubt. Talk soon. <laughs>